Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome to podcast number 13 on our series on American history. In podcast number 12, we looked at how there were yet more last-ditch efforts to try to establish peace between Great Britain and the British colonists in North America. As we know, that wasn't to be, and that's the reason why, retrospectively, the first two battles of what will eventually be called the American Revolution took place at Lexington and Concord, Massachusetts. We saw again how Gage was not there to cause any kind of violence, but that is what ensued. So we discussed those two battles. We also then discussed the uh, Second Continental Congress when they met the following month in May of 1775. And then we looked at some early fighting at the end of that podcast about how the British were trying to hold ground near uh, Boston. And of course, the colonists were trying to seize that same land in Breeds Hill and in other areas, Bunker Hill, etc., around the Boston area. So the British would declare victory in all of these conflicts. But the human cost, the 2,400 casualties on the colonist side, over 3,000 on the British, 450 dead of the colonists, 1,054 dead with the British. Those bodies were shaking the live bodies up. There's no doubt they were. And as we begin now in podcast number 13, we're going to look at now how the future, a retrospectively known group of men called the Founding Fathers and the revolutionaries were interpreting the results of these battles. Because they were, they were pumped up, the colonists, the rebels, were pumped up with the victories of these prior battles, they moved ahead with independence, truly communicating the idea and the intent on breaking away from Great Britain. And I might say, wait a minute, did I miss a podcast somewhere here between 12 and 13? Is there a 12.5 that I'm missing? What do you mean that these victories... Chris, you haven't discussed any colonial victory yet. And you're right, I haven't, because I can't. It didn't exist. Then why are the colonists interpreting these as victories? Simply put, it's because they were, enough of them, alive to fight another day. Yeah, there were a lot of injuries, but they inflicted a heck of a lot, too, on the British, and they interpreted that as a partial victory. Yes, they were burying some of the rebels, but the British were burying a lot more. Wait a minute. How can the rebels be fighting a world-class army, a world-class navy, and they, the rebels, are injuring more of the British than the British are on them? And they are inflicting far more deaths on the British Army 
than the army is inflicting on the rebels. Because at that time, there's no real clear consensus or answer, why bother trying to discuss the realities of, well, that reality? They're alive to fight another day, and the British can't seem to get the upper hand, even with those supposed British victories. So with that, they move ahead again for independence. And we break now in, the, in these podcasts on the American Revolution to discuss this concept of independence. Please note that from the years of 1775 through 1783, those are technically the years that most historians agree that conflict and or negotiation was taking place. Again, part of the umpteenth reason why I don't test on dates in my world and American history classes. There's just too much of a gray area as to, well, exactly how long did this particular episode in world or American history take place? Well, it depends upon the historian or political scientist you're talking to. So from this eight-year time period, though, 75 to 83, we have uncovered roughly 400 pieces of writing from this time that specifically discusses independence from Great Britain. What I mean by 400 pieces of writing, I'm talking about things like the notorious and the most important Declaration of Independence, we'll talk about in a moment, but that's one of these 400 pieces. But these other 400 pieces are also newspaper editorials. They're preacher or priest homily outlines or notes that were kept for posterity, posterity reasons. And also, we found out that a priest at one particular church in 1778, for example, there in southern Massachusetts or northern North Carolina, was brought up the idea of independence there on the altar. And what we notice is that in all 400 pieces that were collected from this time period that discussed the idea of breaking away from Great Britain is every one of them contained the same theme of explanation slash justification. There was yet, has yet to be discovered any pieces of writing from this time where some rebel colonist was communicating to another something to the effect of the heck why we want the reasons for independence, the heck with Great Britain, we're just going to tear their heads off because we can. No, we have nothing that has surfaced that reflects that mindset. Of all the 400 pieces of writing from this time, they all feel as though you see, you feel the, the this, um, tension in the document that the, the writer or speaker feels as though they have to explain or justify why they want to make this break from Great Britain. Ironically enough, the term public opinion, a term that clearly we kick around all the time now, has no record of ever appearing before the year 1776. But in 1776, public opinion, again, a brand new term, is being used all over the place. Once again, because the rebels and the founding fathers felt as though they had to explain or justify their actions. No document embodies this theme more, ironically enough, than the Declaration of Independence itself. Please note a side note here that, as we know, the Declaration of Independence, the future 
Constitution document of the United States, the subsequent Bill of Rights, all three of those documents were written within a stone's throw of one another in Independence Hall State Park in Philadelphia. I cannot encourage you listeners enough to, if you somehow make your way east, to get to Philadelphia, to go to Independence Hall, where the Declaration was written and signed, not to give away the end of the story here, and the Constitution was written and signed. When you walk out, the doors to your right will be Congressional or Congress Hall. That's where the future Bill of Rights signed on December 15, 1791 would be signed, and you can also see that. To your immediate left, a little bit more than a stone's throw away, is Carpenter's Hall, where the Stamp Act Congress and other meetings took place before independence. So again, you have the opportunity, please, it is truly the place of the birthstone of so many of America's cornerstone documents, literally within eyesight of one another. I get chills myself just thinking about it when I went there with my family, which lets me leave um, the podcast with this. The grounds are open almost every day of the year. The last that I checked, they were closed specifically for Thanksgiving Day and Christmas Day. It is true that there is a notorious, the Independence Hall has a notorious reputation, along with Liberty Bell a few blocks down, has a notorious reputation of having two to three hour long lines of people standing to go to see get in Independence Hall, and then another long line to get to Congressional Hall, another long line to get into Carpenter's Hall, etc. Here's a bit of free advice. And once you hear this, go ahead and delete this so nobody else can hear this. Of course, kidding. I called Independence Hall State Park in April of 2017. And I said, I'm a history professor from Northeast Ohio calling about coming down to see Independence Hall, Congressional Hall, and uh, Carpenter's Hall, and the Liberty Bell, et cetera. Well, he obviously gets this call a lot because he said, sorry, sir, no, we don't have any kind of special tours for faculty. You basically have to stand in line like everybody else on and on. I said, no, 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 I'm stopping you right there. Stopping you right there. I'm not looking for that. All I want to know is this. Of every day that you are open, historically, is there any day that has less people say than any other day outside of blowing snow he's like nope we have lines long lines for that too and a blowing rain thunderstorms yep people will still stand in line i said okay i get that but any one day that just happens to stand out as being less crowded than any other and he said well i'll tell you but i don't expect you to believe me because nobody else does for the few that call and ask this question i said try me he said if you'd like to come and see Independence Hall, and practically be able to walk right in, and the same with the other two halls, come and see us on the 4th of July. I said, what? You're kidding me. Nope. Everybody assumes we are closed on the 4th of July. Because of all days that we should be closed, it's the 4th of July. But he said on every day of the year, the day we have to be open is the 4th of July. So we're open and we all look forward to it. All of us volunteers and staffers look forward to it because it truly is an easy day. So few people come through and the Independence Day Parade goes right in front of the buildings. 
Well, that was enough for us. And sure enough, my wife, the three kids and I get down to Independence Hall. And not only were we able to walk right in, we went into some areas twice because there literally was nobody around. We are standing. I'm getting against chills. I'm sorry I ever said that earlier. But just thinking about standing in Independence Hall, looking at that small room where some of the most earth-shattering documents are going to be written that will be copied and emulated by billions of people over the next two centuries plus. We're right, I was standing right in that room on July 4th, even though nothing happened on July 4th. Side note to talk about later on. But standing there on July 4th, when clearly that is what is considered to be America's birthplace or holiday of our birthday, truly. And yet, it was a ghost town. And then to add truly to this blessing of having such the, the so few people around able to see this, but to be able to walk out in front, whereas because the, once the Independence Day parade, they allow the volunteers and staffers to stand outside and they actually need people for crowd management. So all the buildings are then shut and locked. So they whisked my wife and three kids and I out the front doors of Independence Hall, which nobody generally goes through. And we walked into, we walked out, excuse me, into a barricaded area where all the police basically were using as their headquarters. And we're standing up on these three or four steps overlooking this street of just a mass of human population. The only way that you could see this uh, actual concrete was the middle of the street where the parade was about to come down in the next few minutes. My wife and I were looking at one another saying, where the heck do we go? Where do we walk to, to even try to find a place to stand with that a police officer turns and looks up at me and i said sorry officer we were just escorted out of the building because they're locking it up we will leave here we're just trying to figure out where's that where the best place to go is and he said at this hour i think your best bet is to stay right where you're at i said we can stay here no but as long as i don't see you i have no idea you're there and with that, he turned his back to us, went back to his job, and my sons and daughter and wife and I watched the Independence Day parade pass right by us on the steps of where it, of the building where it all happened. So again, some unsolicited advice, go see it Independence Day and see it, or Independence Hall and see it on the 4th of July. So, all right, looking back, in terms of the Declaration of Independence, what really is that document? It is the first formal American state paper. That's the reason why it becomes our cornerstone. Please remember, though, and I know I've said this before, and I will say it again, though, as I remind my students in my classes, nobody in July of 1776 knows how this is going to play out. Remember that. There's no future 21st historian that's jumping through his podcast to run back to this time and say, hey, you boys, you're dialed in. You've got it. You know where it's at. This is going to happen. Just stay headstrong. Stay, you know, persevere. You've got this. Uh -uh. They don't know if they've got anything. What is us, the first American formal state paper, was also a document with the commitment and the true evidence of treason. If these men get caught, please remember that. So the date of its final revision was Tuesday, July 2nd, 1776, not Thursday the 4th, 
Tuesday the 2nd. In fact, John Adams, our future second president of the United States and father of the sixth president, goes back to his room at the Capitol Tavern or City Tavern, as it's now called. City Tavern, by the way, was the only cafe, the only restaurant, and the only place that had available rooms that some of the founding fathers stayed in. That building called the City Tavern has been completely rebuilt because of code problems and structural problems. It's built in the exact same way the founding fathers went there, notorious number of times in 1776 and again in 1787 and all everywhere in between. The waiters and waitresses are dressed exactly like they were dressed in the late 1700s. The only thing that you can order from the menu are foods that were available to the Founding Fathers. Yes, they have an upscale menu if you wish to diverge from history and stay with modern times, or you can get the older one, which of course I stayed with. You want a beer? Have at it. Because the only beers that you're going to be allowed to choose from are the ale recipes that some of our Founding Fathers actually wrote themselves. It is beyond a wonderful experience. When you sit down, you are sitting at tables like it was in 1776. Everything is the same as it was in this famous summer until you get the bill. And when the waiter came up, I said, excuse me, sir, I have a complaint to make. And he says, I'm sorry, was it the food? No, the beer? No. Then what's to complain about? Well, your sign out there says everything's back to 1776. He says, yes, it is. Where did it diverge from that? And I handed him the bill and he said, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. You got me on that one. And we laughed. But truly, it was $110 for the five of us. Of course, we also had a flight of beers because I couldn't choose which president's beer to have. So I simply got them all in what would they call a flight of beers. So on July 2nd, John Adams went back to his room there at the city tavern and he wrote to his wife, Abigail, and said that today, July 2nd, if somehow we can pull off independence, will be the future birthday of America that everybody, hopefully everybody, will celebrate. It will be remembered as America's birthday, a day in which all of us are and should be so proud. But again, ladies and gentlemen, the date is July 2nd, not July 4th. On July 3rd, the Founding Fathers were to meet there in Independence Hall in that same room. We have no evidence if they met. There is some th some theory, um, British historians argue that the British were known to uh, occupy or to uh, circle this hall looking for Founding Fathers, looking for acts of uh, the arbiters of treason, etc., perpetrators of, of treason. So therefore, uh, it is likely that on July 3rd, the Founding Fathers might not have met. However, on July 4th, they did meet. They only met in the morning. And by 11 a.m. on July 4th, not one colonial representative, representative objected to anything on the document. So it was officially, but only verbally, adopted or accepted on July 4th. But what good is that document with no signatures? This is when John Hancock, being the president of the congressional delegation, had his quill in hand. He did not have to be the first to sign it, though. 
So he stepped back, motioning to the likes of Benjamin Franklin and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton. Uh, anybody here <clears throat> care to step forward and sign this thing? Uh, no. John? Adams, what about you? Uh, hand cramps this morning. Yeah, you know that arthritis is kind of kicking in. Uh, Thomas Jefferson? Don't tell me arthritis, pal. You're the youngest one in the group here. I mean, come on, I just wrote the whole document. I got to sign it too. Why don't you go first? Folks, nobody wanted to sign it. And can you blame them? Once that document gets sent to the printers and sent out to anybody and everybody who will read it and take a look at it truly worldwide to the founding fathers their declaration there was about to hit social media it was about to get posted on facebook or twitter once it gets out there there's no pulling it back and for that reason whatever signatures are on there they are knowingly subjecting themselves to being drawn and quartered should they get caught by the british so no nobody was eager on the morning of July 4th to step up and sign it. Hancock, supposedly very frustrated, more or less saying that something to the effect of, well, the heck with all you, steps forward and signs his name in a way that he normally didn't sign it. But he signed it right in the middle of the bottom, right below the last sentence of the document. And he made it large and he made it clear and he drew a line underneath his name. Two witnesses later pointed out or testified that after Hancock had signed it, he put the quill back in the inkwell and said, there, my signature, nice and clear for the British to read. If those sons of bitches can find me, they can get me. But until then, I affirm this document. Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Congress, was also legally required to sign because of his position there within that particular congressional delegation. And then, next, hello, we got the ink here that's evaporating. Yeah, none of the founding fathers stepped forward. I'm not taking anything away from them. Those men to even be there that morning physically within the vicinity of that document was getting going to get them drawn and quartered if they were caught and arrested. They all had backbones of solid rebar, truly had strong backbones. But signing it was another matter. Yes, I mentioned earlier that the colonists were pumped with their quote-unquote victories. But even up to July 4th, Washington had yet to send any correspondence, George Washington, that he had any solid victories, that he has yet to arrest any British officers of significance. As a result, everybody left Independence Hall on July 4th without anybody else signing it. Yes, it then went to the printers. The original document was retained by John Hancock at future meetings to see if anybody else might want to sign it the next day or the day after or the week after. Ladies and gentlemen, for the entire month of July, not one founding father signed it. Word has it that by July 6th, when it started being mass produced, word had it that no one actually signed the document until at least August 2nd. It is at this point that I bring up a visual image 
of the bottom of the Declaration of Independence for my students to see. And I asked them to look closely at all 56 of those signatures. And I asked them if anything stands out. And of course, everybody points to John Hancock. It's the reason why one of the taller buildings in the United States in downtown Chicago is named after that, the quintessential John Hancock, because it stands there right at about six to 800 North Michigan Avenue out there for everybody to see, even out to the lake, people can see the John Hancock building. Yes, it has its notoriety and Hancock has it for those reasons as he should. But I ask him outside of that, any of the others? And they look around and they look around. Occasionally a student will point to John Adams signature and say, why is John Adams the only signer that actually puts a period after his name? And I look at the student and I say, you have no idea the can of worms you just opened up because one of the founding fathers asked John Adams the exact same question. And that question was not answered well, and it did not go well. More about that in another class I tell them, or in this case, in a future podcast. So John Adams, yeah, he's got that sign, got that uh, period behind his name. I said, anything else? And finally, a few students got it. They say, yeah. Those signatures aren't really all that legible. Some of them aren't even really big at all. I said, you got it. When they signed, their hands were visibly shaken. Again, they knew the torture that awaited them. But either they're serious about independence or they're not. Because the Declaration of Independence, amongst other things, as we'll discuss, it was an international cry for help. The Founding Fathers needed that document outside of the colonies far more than they needed it inside. They needed the monarchs of France and Portugal and Spain to read this, to say, hey, we're serious about independence if you'll help us. But how do those royal monarchs, those foreign dignitaries, take them seriously if nobody's signing it? You got to have some signatures to show, get some teeth to it, some grit, seriousness to it. Two signatures wasn't going to do it. And that's eventually when the men lined up to sign again one month later. But with the signing of that declaration, along with the fact that within that declaration truly is the cornerstone of what we will eventually call American freedom and the ideals of American society, what also gets ingrained in us is the idea of 1776. If you think about it, it's kind of an odd year. Guys, why couldn't you have just done that at least seven months earlier? It had been 1775. There's kind of a cornerstone year. Or wait another generation in four years and do it in 1800. But 1776, what the heck are we supposed to do with that? It's such an odd number, right? However, that odd number is ingrained in the American psyche to the point that the original format for the 21-gun salute comes from 1776. You hear about 21-gun salutes being performed, more or less, or honored for members of our military and government, etc., and even sometimes just people of notoriety uh, for other reasons that served in some capacity in American armed forces that deserved the 21-gun salute. Generally, though, what you see is a random number that will have 21 actual rounds of gunfire. And there's nothing wrong with how that's done as long as it's 21 shots or volleys fired, or in our cases today, blanks 
fired. But the original format that is only done for the dignitaries of the highest notoriety is in the following format. There are seven soldiers. Today, they would be from the Marines, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army. There would be seven of them. Every officer will fire their weapon three times. There will be four rounds of firing, though. So if you weren't watching them and were looking down or your eyes were closed, you would hear four rounds of fire. But every officer only fired three times. That's the requirement. That's the limit. And you might say, okay, Chris, stick to your history podcast, pal, because this doesn't add up to 17. This doesn't add up to a 21-gun salute. In fact, that's 28. Nope. Because round one, round one, the first officer of the seven fires. Round two, all seven officers fire. Round three, all seven officers fire. Round four, the last six officers fired. The first one doesn't. When it's done in that format, you get that number in your head, 1776. When you add those numbers up, you get the number 21. That is the origins of the original format of the 21-gun salute. So now that you know that and can sleep better tonight, we're going to go ahead and end that podcast here. And when we come back, we're going to look at specifically what was in that Declaration of Independence that was so highly lauded by the Founding Fathers, but in some cases laughed at by nations of people around the world. And as a side note, if by chance you come across an attorney and you need to file a lawsuit either against the government or against somebody, a civil lawsuit, and that lawyer says, absolutely, you hired the right man or the right woman because I know your rights were violated right there in the Declaration of Independence, hire yourself another lawyer because that Declaration of Independence that we're going to talk about in the next podcast has absolutely no legal bearing in any court system in the United States of America. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.